Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. Since the beginning of the year, we've been in a sermon series, Act Like Jesus, not because we think we can be Jesus ourselves, but because through the course of church history, and as we look at the life of Jesus, we see there were certain regular rhythms and routines uh, that became points at which people have come into deeper relationship with God. I've used the analogy of an athlete who loves to play the game, whatever that game is. There are certain exercise and training routines that they do. The point is not so much the training routine. The point is really enjoying and loving the game. So we've looked at corporate worship. We've looked at prayer. Today we're going to look at Bible study personal time to get into the Word of God, community time to get into the Word of God and let it shape us. So um, as we do this this week, this text I want to look at, the same one we used earlier in the fall, it's from Paul's letter to his good friend and ministry associate, Timothy. It's the second letter of Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. So let me ask, as you're able, stand with me out of reverence and appreciation for the Word of God, uh, and follow along on the screen as I read from Paul's letter to his friend, Timothy. Timothy, you, however, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, and endurance, the persecutions and the sufferings, those things that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and the persecutions that I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. You know those. It's personal. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is God-breathed. That's a key word I'm going to focus on this morning. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. O Lord, our God and Father, Thank you that the truth of your presence with us in the incarnation of Jesus is history and life-changing. Thank you that as a reflection of that, you have actually breathed, given life, illuminated into human language through the writings of the Scripture. So as Paul prayerfully, thoughtfully wrote, you were superintending in a way that it was your spirit that gave life to the words we've just read. And in an amazing way, those texts have been preserved. It's a fascinating story. And now we can, as it were, 
uh, unroll the scroll, translate, pray, study, have conversations, consider. Even as you've been at work from the very beginning on this Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would bring illumination, you'd complete the work, that our minds and hearts would be uh, illuminated to hear your voice and to respond with obedience, that we might flourish into the calling that you've created us for, whether it's in our families or our work or at school, wherever you might place us. We ask that the word of God would dwell richly within us and produce the fruit that only you can. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. So, this morning I want to give you a picture that I think will deal powerfully with this word God breathed. And then I want to invite you to, in a new way, take a step, open the book, But the goal, and I want to set this from the very beginning, is that you meet the living God. Friends, we live in a fascinating moment of history. There's a dramatic transition that's beginning to emerge and and float up and affect us in ways we may not otherwise be aware of. Uh, On New Year's Eve, Pastor Darwin used this idea of the closed box and the open box. You will see the world and live out your world, either from the context of a closed box or an open box, was his thought. A closed box that's sealed, self-contained. The only thing that matters is what in that box. But an open box where other things can come in, where there can be a difference. Now, keep this in mind, the closed box and the open box. Where do you live? How do you view the world? How do you see it? You see, the closed box picture of the world is simple, direct cause and effect. It's what you can see. It's what you can explain. It's what you can understand. And it's limited by all those things. The closed box only has physics or social forces or economics or psychology. It's limited to humanity and human resources. The open box intersects with something greater than itself. It's open to more than just what's in the box. Transcendence. The open box, things can speak and be present in it from outside it. There can be a word from outside. The closed box becomes about power and control, and explanation, and limits to what are human. The open box is about discovery, and identifying new and different and powerful ways. It realizes that reality is more than meets the eye. You know, there's an interesting thing. I was just uh, listening to a book uh, this week And they talked about the impact of Thomas Edison in the late 1800s and the fascination with electricity as a a force new and powerful for us to control. Well, you know, in 1600s, there were still electrons moving and functioning. Electricity was truth. It happened. We just didn't know about it. Over time... You see, we began to understand electricity, and there was something new and vibrant. 
Let me tell you about reality. I can sum it up this quickly. Reality is discovered, not made. Reality exists outside of you. You will discover it. You will let it shape your life. You will let it be a part of who you are. Or else you will simply live in the restrictions of what you start with. That's the the closed box and the open box. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here to think that the closed box is about science and physics and the open box is about spirituality and weirdness. No, there's science and spirituality in both the closed box. It's just different than the science and spirituality that you run into in the open box. Let's dig into this. I want to give you a concrete example. Oh, that I didn't print up. How do you like that? I read a post this week from the internet who wanted to explain the birth of the church. And he said, who was it that turned Christianity into a religion? And it told the story of the early church fathers. The beginnings of Christianity as a theology is obscure and hardly known. Most people try to go back to the stories of the Bible and of Jesus. But the thinkers who were part of forming the Christian theology that now shows itself in the authority of the church were these, the early church fathers. And I read that and I thought, what an amazing closed box explanation of how the church started. Now, I believe there were historical factors. There were people, there were thinkers. Some were really good, some were not so good. But you know what? In the founding of who we are, I believe there was also the activity of God. What I read in that post was an explanation of the founding of the church with no transcendence. What I believe we are experiencing and called to live is an experience of human life together, but that also includes the presence of the living God. You see, you can read the Bible from a closed box experience Will you explain it in light of what you know and understand, fit it and form it into that? Or we can read the Bible with an openness to meeting something bigger, not contradictory, but bigger. That's the open box perspective. That's what I pray for each day as I dig into the scripture for my own life. That's what I pray for. And you hear it in my prayer as I come to preach. That the words that are written, and they are words, we need to learn how to translate. Uh, I was taught in seminary to actually diagram the New Testament in Greek in my understanding of it, to dig in. So we want to get those words. We want to get that historical context. But there's more going on than you'll ever get by simply um, diagramming the sentences. This is a place that Jesus said he would meet us in the person of the Holy Spirit. You'll either have to fit that into your closed box or you can begin to ask yourself, what would it look like to really encounter the living God in this book as he's promised? Now, I want to tell you, this closed box perspective pervades our world. I've put a blog post on my blog about an experience I had 
in, a fresh, in my freshman class, a very good college, church-related college, preparing me to be a minister, but they taught me the closed-box perspective of studying the Scripture. A particular experience I remember was as we were in a freshman class working through the Old Testament, and they told us that the book of Daniel was vibrant visions, but not good history. Yes, it says it was written that time. It says this, it says that, but it really isn't history, so don't think of it as history. Now, what that meant for a lot of the guys in my dorm worked its way out. Oh, okay, not reliable. I get it. That means probably not reliable in regard to whatever freshman men are after. Fascinating thing happened, though. As a freshman in my humanities classes where I was getting it, I was not aware that in 1881, an archaeologist had unearthed a clay cylinder, the Nabonidus cylinder it's called. It had been taken to a German museum and was there right then as I was in that class. Why does that matter? Because the book of Daniel mentions a king by the name of Belshazzar. And we had no historical references to Belshazzar. So I was told he didn't exist. Daniel's not good history. You can't trust what else it says. But the Nabonidus cylinder was in the museum in Germany. And 10 years after I graduated, it was translated. And you know who's mentioned in that cylinder? Belshazzar. Turns out it actually explains why he was called king and nobody else knew of him as king. So everything I learned about Daniel as a freshman at a church-related college that had been taught me from a closed-box perspective was one translation of a clay cylinder in the basement of a museum away from being shown to be wrong. I once explained that and walked through that. Do you, do you get calls from the place you went to college? I, every year they call me up and ask me for money. I once explained and said I would give more than $10 if they would just mail everybody that I graduated with and said, sorry, what we taught you was incorrect. The issue there was not that they were lacking knowledge or lacking science. The issue was that they were looking at the scripture from a closed box perspective of the world. As it turns out, science, given how it works, given over time, learn, perfect, science would point out that there's more going on here than just meets the eye. Hear the story. Here there's something bigger because at the end of the day, a cylinder made of clay that's recently translated is not what salvation is about, but a God who would give his life for you at the cross will make himself known reliably. That's important. I could go on and on. Again, so much of this I had to trend, work through as a, a college student. 
Um, in the book of Isaiah, chapters 44 and 45, you'll read about this guy named Cyrus. He was the king of Persia in about, oh, let's say 550. He had a longer reign than that. But the book of Isaiah is purportedly written by a prophet who lived in the reign of the king Hezekiah, 750. 200 years difference. Now, the closed box perspective that I was taught said that's because there's two Isaiahs, maybe three. Was there ever a text of a second Isaiah? Was there ever the Isaiah of chapters 1 through 40 and somebody else? No. But the closed box perspective can't imagine God speaking in to our physical reality from his perspective. It's a closed box. The Bible claims to be a word from outside the system into our lives, into our culture, into our hearts. And so as I was thinking and wrestling with a scripture about Bible study, I think the deepest issue for each one of us is really this. Are we going to read the book from a closed box or from an open box perspective? Could there be more than just cause and effect? Could there be more and could it shape and speak and guide our lives? Now, it seems clear to me that in terms of the Bible itself, it opts for the second option, the open box. And it's all about this word, God breathed. You heard me uh, read it this morning. All scripture is God breathed. Now, I could give you the Greek background, um, Theopneustos, the Strong's number, 2315. You could do all the study that goes with this. But here's what I'll summarize. This word was made by Paul to describe the scripture. You don't find it used before. It's not like he took a word in common parlance and said, oh, this is about the Bible. He took two words, God, pneustos, revelation, breath, wind, spirit, and he put them together. You see the word used after that, but this is apparently the first time it's ever used. It's a unique and compound word. And we ought to understand it in the way we use our language as well. Now, trick question here. Don't anybody raise your hand. How many of you believe that the sun rises in the east? I want to tell you something. We all say the sun rises in the east, but not one of us believes that the earth is stationary and here comes the sun. The earth rotates and what we experience, what we, per, what we perceive is the sun coming up in the east. So we use the term sunrise. You don't want Ellen Baca saying, and tomorrow the rotation of the earth will cross the meridian of the so-and-so at so-and-so time. No, when, when is sunrise, Ellen? Give it to me. You see, we describe things, and this is Paul's way of describing, using a new word, bringing us combined insight into how the Scripture works. It's God-breathed. 
And that begins to help us understand because the idea of breath of life is all through the Bible. You'll remember Genesis, it's actually two verses, verse seven in particular, and I got that wrong in the outline. We read this, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, there it is, the breath of life. So what made Adam and Eve so unique and different from the rest of creation was the breath of God. God breathed into them. Created from the dust is the metaphor in the picture used. Yes, there's physical reality, but there's something more that's different. If you study a person, a body, as if they were just an animal, you'll never understand that body. I remember a doctor, a friend of mine, began his career, well-trained, well-schooled, and he said, you know, you do your thing, I do mine. Science, faith, they don't come together. About five years later, I remember him sitting down and said, you know, I've had people die on my surgical table who had no reason to die. And I've had people live who've had no reason to live. I think there's more going on than I realized. What this friend of mine was saying was that I was trained in the closed box, but I think maybe it's open. Maybe there's more going on here. The breath of life. Later on in Ezekiel, there's the vision in chapter 37 of the dry bones. Listen to this. Then the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may, may live. Breath brings life. The dry bones now have power. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy in Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. We might sense their literary style. We might know their historical context. But what they're writing, Peter is saying, is not their own words. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were lifted along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, I get that it's possible to read a great book, and that book will give you a perspective on life that points to something greater than itself. This week, I was thinking back over some of the books that have shaped me in powerful ways for the kingdom of God. That's real and that's good, but it's different than what we have in the Bible. The Bible comes with a promise. God says, I will meet you here. The Bible as a book, or even as a library of books, I like that picture, is where God has promised to meet me and to meet you and to make himself known to you. The Bible as a book, collecting many books together, is unique because it comes with a promise. Other books may tell me about the breeze that brings life. The Bible is written by that wind that brings life. It's possible to miss that wind. I mean, We've all been through times where we just read the Bible and it's in one ear and out the other. I studied the Bible and accumulated facts. 
There was a time in my life where it wasn't my goal, but baby, I was a killer at the Bible trivia game. I was able to gather the facts from the Bible and assemble them. But God has more for us than that. God has more for us that are than just principles for us to apply, the ones we like and avoid the ones we don't. The Bible calls us to meet the author of the book. I love this promise, this one verse that Jesus gave to his disciples, and in that way it's been recorded and given to us. This is the word of Jesus to you and me. John 14, 26, he says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, namely the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Friends, when we come to the Bible, we come to the place where the Father says he will send the Spirit. I'll send him. Here, you will hear him. The Spirit will teach you. I want to tell you something. The verbs used, will teach and will remind, they're future verbs. They're not just spoken and then left to you. As we come to the Scripture, different than any other book we may ever encounter, as we come to the Scripture, here is where the Holy Spirit wants to meet us and begin to say, do you hear that? This is for your life. Do you see the cross? This is where I would rescue you. Here in the Bible, the Spirit will teach, the Father will send, and the Spirit will do a third thing. He will remind y'all. I love to use the more clear form of English that we used in the South growing up. This is second person plural. This is not the Spirit will remind you. This is the Spirit will remind you. There is something, not only as we come to the Scripture personally, but as we stand together with it corporately, that the Spirit speaks and begins to bring us to center, begins to illumine our hearts and minds, to to convict of sin that He might offer grace and transform us, to find guidance, to find hope. Here, the Spirit, that's what separates what happens in the Bible and what we encounter, even of God in a great book. We can look back in history and we can see one person who who was trained in this closed box system who really stands out. I'm very taken by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned this German pastor who was one of the few to resist the Nazis in Germany in the 40s. You see, As a child, he'd grown up in Germany, but he'd been really mentored. He was homeschooled, but that's another whole issue, isn't it? He was raised by two Moravian nannies. And if you know anything about the Moravians, if you don't know anything about them, you ought to read a book. They're amazing. It was a movement of God in Germany. Um, And that outpouring led to these nannies raising this family of children, the Bonhoeffer children, and they taught them to meditate on the daily Moravian sentences. In the Moravian church, if you've got any friends that are Moravians, their whole movement um, meditates on a particular scripture passage each day. 
until they've sensed God speaking to them in that scripture passage, and then they go live it out. That's how you have a prayer meeting that goes on for over a century. The Moravians have had an, had an ongoing prayer meeting for over a century, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, out of the experience they had with God in Germany. How does that happen? It happens when you don't look at the Bible as a way to garnish facts, but as a bridge to meet a great God. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was raised, mentored by these two Moravian nannies. He would go on and earn a PhD in his early 20s, brilliant guy, mastered the closed box teaching of his seminary. But then in the 30s in Germany, when he and others formed an underground illegal seminary, Finkenwalde, preparing pastors, even as Nazism rose to take power in Germany. He trained the pastors in the Moravian meditation, not in the higher criticism of the seminaries. That was the key to a remnant of pastors who would follow God and resist oppression. A closed box system or an open box system. Open box meaning God has breathed into this. Here I can meet not just an idea but a person and be transformed by that. You know, I want to invite you to take one step forward, whatever that may be, in the spiritual practice of regular reading of the Bible. If we were to go to the gym, I wouldn't ask you to begin bench pressing 500 pounds. But if you were to start with what you can bench press now and regularly, carefully, systematically begin to exercise that, what you'll find is that strength will build over time. So I want to invite you to take one step forward into regular Bible reading. I'm not going to push in particular a system. I, uh, there's a through the Bible in a year. That's a good way to go. Great way to do is read one chapter of the Gospel of John a day. And when you get to the end, you know what you need to do after that? Go back to John 1. Read it again. One chapter a day. Three to five minutes. Friends, how would you like to get to December? Having read the Gospel of John start to finish six times this year. I want to tell you, that would do you better than having four Bibles on your bookshelf or having started that through the Bible in a year program and given up at Leviticus. Take one step, whatever it is. Maybe read a chapter of the book of Proverbs a day. There's 31 chapters. Today is January 28. Open the book of Proverbs to chapter 28 and read it. And read one chapter in the book of Proverbs according to the date on the calendar. How would you like to get to December and have read the book of Proverbs 12 times this year rather than just think that the Bible is important and good? Whatever a next step would be, find it, take it, do it. You want to read the book of Proverbs? I'll expand your time to take up eight minutes a day. Read one chapter of Proverbs and read the daily devotional in Tim and Kathy Keller's book, Navigating Life with Wisdom. That'll help you read that with someone else who's got a great heart for God. You see, it's the small steps like training for the Super Bowl that get you there. 
I invite you to that step. We even have a method that we're happy to hand out. You'll see these distributed in places, the SOAPS Bible Study Bookmark. SOAPS, and I've taught this before, and an acronym for scripture, find a verse there in the Proverbs or in John if you're reading a chapter a day, observe what stands out when you read it, who's speaking to who, what's this about, application, what do you need to implement or obey this in your life, prayer, since the scripture is to introduce you to God the person, pray to him, and then share. With whom or how might you share what impacted you with others? Read a chapter, do the method. But more than a particular process or structure, like I said last week with prayer, I didn't need a new prayer book. I needed a different heart. I needed to have a hunger to meet God. I've been praying this week that you would have a a motivation, an encouragement, an invitation to meet someone who loves you in the scripture and that that would be the strength to step across. I wanna tell you a story from Mary Lynn's life. I want you to see that the setting for your reading and reflection, I, I want you to see that differently than perhaps you ever have. Rather than thinking you sit down to the Bible to hear from a teacher and get info, or a lawgiver who'll just lay expectations on you, or some uh, crazy, long-forgotten, irrelevant taskmaster, don't know what that's about. I want to give you a different picture of where our Bible reading ought to take us. There's a true and perfect Heavenly Father. I'm thankful that my dad was pretty good dad, but I tell you, he wasn't perfect. He was good enough, though, to point me to the true and perfect. Imagine if there was a true and perfect father like you may have never had, one who's wise and loving and safe, one who has insight to give you insight into the questions of your life, if you'll only listen to him. As a child, Mary Lynn remembers going to visit Dadu, her paternal grandfather, if you're playing bingo who lived on the farm in West Virginia. And at night after dinner, she and her sister and brothers would gather on the front porch, dad do in the rocking chair, and he would tell stories. She heard him tell stories about what it was like to be a bricklayer and to, to move to the country so that his sons would learn a farm work ethic. She heard that story and it shaped her. She learned how her grandfather had laid brick to build Marshall University, but through the winter, and he was so shaped by laying brick in the winter in West Virginia that he told his sons they were free to do what they wanted in their life. They could be a doctor or a lawyer, but they weren't going to be bricklayers because he had done that, and he wanted something better for them. They would watch him as he sent the Australian border collies out to round up the cattle and bring them home. And as he rocked and talked, they were safe, they were loved, they were gaining insight for life, they were being drawn in to something greater than themselves. You see, their little closed box lives at that time were pretty chaotic, but there was a word that came from outside 
that shaped and guided them, that they remember now, and it sets a focus. Imagine if every morning, or maybe I for a while would do a five-minute devotion as I left work before I got home. I was a better husband because I did that. Because I'd begin to remember the voice of one who loved me, the voice of one who'd laid guardrails down for my life. Don't try that, it'll hurt you and those you love. A voice would motivate the journey. Take that step of faith, reach across, say hello, move to a different location. You see, that's why we read the Bible. Because there we hear the voice of one who's loved us, who's breathed into our world his love, and we get to know more than a collection of facts. We get to know the one who would give his life for us and for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us. We look at this broken world, and sometimes it's hard to imagine that. And yet, this book breathed by you into our broken world, that we might go there, sense the presence of your breath, hear the voice on that breath. That voice tells us that every person we ever meet will be an image bearer of the living God and they're valuable. That includes us. And every person we ever meet will be an image bearer who's been broken in some way and who needs rescue and redemption. And that's what the gospel is about. I pray you'd move deeply in our hearts, not to try to turn us into a Superman this month, but that we would take a step. I remember one time in the midst of a really difficult season of my life, all I could do was take one verse from a Bible memory pack and I'd put it on the dashboard of my car as I drove around from contract to contract. But I would meditate on that like the Moravians in their sentence. I would meditate on that and let your voice shape my heart. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Help us to be a people not of academic brilliance with an ancient Near Eastern manuscript, but as a people who humbly and carefully, knowing we're often confused, as a people who come to your word, say, speak, Lord. Your servant listens, and by your grace, we'll trust you to build obedience into our lives. Thank you for this moment together. Guide us, fill us with great hope. Thank you for your kindness. I pray, Father, that for those who are weeping, you would be, bring comfort, and for those who are rejoicing, you would multiply it through them to others. Thank you that we navigate this together that we read and study, listening, and we do that together. Fill us with great hope. Thank you for this moment and for what you have begun right here to your glory. These things we pray in the marvelous name of Jesus and all of God's people sit together. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.